Welcome to On Mic, conversations from Northgate Hall, home of the University of California, Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. I'm Ed Wasserman, Dean of the School. As one of the nation's top journalism programs, we regularly invite the world's best reporters, writers, and documentarians to talk about the stories behind their stories. This time, a visit to our school from David Korn and Michael Isakoff, best-selling authors of Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. David Korn is chief of the Washington Bureau of Mother Jones Magazine. He appears frequently on Fox News, MSNBC, and NPR, and has won the prestigious Polk Award in journalism. Michael Isakoff is the chief investigative correspondent at Yahoo News. He has previously worked at Newsweek and NBC. In Russian Roulette, they give us what has been called the most thorough and riveting account we have of the still-emerging links between the Kremlin and the Trump presidential campaign. In this conversation before an audience at Berkeley's Northgate Hall, lecturer Deirdre English asks the authors about the remarkable cast of Russian, English, and American characters who show up throughout the 2016 presidential campaign and beyond. It's on Mike, Deirdre English in conversation with David Korn and Michael Isakoff. So uh, let me just start, um, Michael Isakoff, with you. And you know, who is Natalia Veselnitskaya? Ah, <laughs> this is, I feel like I'm in a game of Jeopardy yeah. here. <laughs> just just to yeah. get rolling. Um, uh, she, and if I try to pronounce the name, I'll probably butcher it. But it's uh, Natalia for is the easy one. She was the lawyer um, who was at the Trump Tower meeting. Um, and, uh, you know, the Trump Tower meeting is, you know, that's the, uh, the big meeting that really um, uh, got a lot of people's attention uh, because of the email trail showing quite explicitly uh, that the highest officials in the Trump campaign were offered uh, uh, sensitive documents from Kremlin files about Hillary Clinton and they were eager to see them. And so there's the meeting at Trump Tower, Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, meeting with this delegation and, of Russians, yes, including and, and Natalia. An eighth, and there was an eighth person at that meeting, right? Uh, there were, um, I, I'm That came out re really recently? Counting. Well, there was a, a, a professional money launderer yeah. who was there, he's, yes, uh, uh, who is uh, one of the shadowy figures of the story. He's but anyway. He's an, ol an oligarch? Um, he works no, no, for an oligarch. He works for an oligarch. He was the money launderer for uh, Aris Aguilarov, who was Trump's, that's one of the names Trump's that's coming. business partner uh, in the Trump Tower deal in, in Moscow and in Miss Universe. Anyway, Natalia yeah. uh, was the lawyer who supposedly had the documents. Uh, and uh, what's interesting about her, and we have a lot, some fresh reporting about her in the book, about her uh, ties to... Um, the Kremlin and the FSB, and we talk about a, uh, a character who was basically threatened by her in Moscow uh, and um, uh, is threatened with arrest. He fled and was granted political asylum. Uh, he talked to us and told us explicitly that she told him, you know, if you, I'm working with the FSB, and if you don't cut out what you're doing that's threatening to my clients, you're going to be arrested. Um, uh, so it was a f it was further confirmation that um, this was not some idol group of Russians 
who uh, made their way into Trump Tower. It was people who had very close connections to high, the highest levels of the Kremlin. So let me just say something. That eighth person who was there, um, uh, I, Kevin Lotzi. Yes, yeah. and he yeah. he's just for you know hometown news. He's suing um, George Lakoff, our own George Lakoff, who's an emeritus professor here, for having mentioned that on MSNBC. <laughs> yeah, and wow, that's uh, an that's, active lawsuit, and uh, he's that's got, weird because you know Mother yeah. Jones was the first to write about that's his right. connection to all of this. That might be where George got it. <laughs> Sorry, George. <laughs> Don't give me a call. <laughs> I think he's very well represented by a good yeah. law firm. But uh, David Korn, let me ask you about Christopher Steele. Uh, Christopher David Steele um, uh, is, is his full name. Uh, what did I just yeah. say? No, you said Christopher Steele. Okay. Um, he uh, is, of course, the person behind the, what's called the Steele dossier, which I hate as a term. It's a misnomer. Dossier seems to imply a finished product. What he did was he produced a series of memos that were much in the way a reporter would send in memos to an editor from the field. Here are the things that I'm being told, which is what I'm hearing. Nothing that was actually confirmed. And he had had a long history uh, in MI6, the British CIA, its Foreign Intelligence Service. And he had spent many of his years doing counterintelligence, focusing on the Soviet Union and Russia. And then he did what many uh, former intelligence officers do. He created a private firm. This one was called Orbis. And it was a small, boutique type of, type of firm and was, had, a, had a better reputation from, than many. And that it was based on continuing what he did when he worked for British intelligence, maintaining a network of sources inside Russia and elsewhere to work for private clients and companies. And he did work that came to the attention of the FBI and the State Department uh, that for years prior to this uh, scandal saw him as a credible source. He would share information with them on an informal basis. And so in June, of 2016, literally the same week as the meeting we were just talking about, hmm. um, a fellow named Glenn Simpson, who worked for Fusion GPS, a um, sort of a corporate research intelligence firm, uh, who had been a brilliant reporter for the Wall Street Journal, focusing on Russian oligarch corruption, money laundering, and, and other matters, um, had been hired by the um, Democratic Party and the Hillary Clinton campaign, although without them really knowing that. That's a whole other story. But anyway, to do opposition research on Donald Trump. And he was interested in you know, Trump's business dealings in Russia, particularly the fact that Trump had been going there for years and years and years, mm -hmm. and he kept announcing big deals that never happened. Mm -hmm. And so he called up, you know, actually he met Christopher David Steele, an Italian res restaurant in Heathrow, and they had worked together in the past. And he said, will you, um, you know, take on this job and just do some research? And Steele said yes. And when, within about two weeks, he had the first Steele memo, which had some of the stuff that people most know about it. Yeah. And uh, David, what was your role in exposing the, the Steele dossier? Well, um, I was the first reporter to uh, to report on its existence. Mm -hmm. uh, I did a piece of Mother Jones on October 31st 
uh, eight days before the election, in which I noted that there was such a person I as Christopher, as Christopher Steele. Steele, I did not name him. I had, you know, been put in touch with him by by Glenn Simpson, and my agreement with him was not to name him, and but to say that he had done these series of memos. Your agreement with Simpson was to name and with Steele. Yeah. Did you meet Steele? Uh, it was through Skype. Okay. The mm -hmm. way we do things these days. Mm -hmm. uh, he was in England at the time and was not coming back to the United States mm -hmm. at that point in time, and um, you know, I had also uh, seen the memos. And uh, you know, every, all the memos that existed up to that point, which was most of them. And, and to me, what was important about the story was that uh, Steele had said, with a fair amount of credibility, that he had given all this information to the FBI, and the FBI was investigating it, and he was you know, uh, involved in that. So to me, you know, as we presented it in Mother Jones, the story was a former British uh, Western intelligence counterintelligence officer had presented the FBI information. You know, I did not report on the infamous salacious material, mm -hmm. but his top line in that first memo was that Russia had a years-long project to secretly cultivate and co-opt Trump, that there had been an exchange of information mm -hmm. between the Trump circle and Russia. And, and the third big point was that they had obtained uh, information of a personal nature, I guess you can call it that, um, that could be used to compromise Trump. So I, I, I talked about those big wide points without getting into the details and published that story on Halloween. <laughs> Trick or treat. Okay. Yes. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll be talking more about the Steele dossier, but um, I'm going to throw you one, Michael Isakoff, Guccifer 2.0. Ah, yes. Guccifer 2.0 is a uh, online persona who the U.S. intelligence community believes uh, was a creation of Russian intelligence. Um, and uh, he pops up right about the time that uh, it becomes known that the uh, uh, Russians have hacked into the computers of the DNC and swiped thousands of emails. Uh, and uh, initially, what's interesting about this is, you know, it, this was not the first time a foreign intelligence agency had hacked into a political campaign in, two, in, in the United States. In 2008, Chinese intelligence hackers um, penetrated both the Obama and the McCain campaigns. Nobody knew about it during the election at all, even though the FBI and the US intelligence community did, and the campaigns. It was all hush-hush. Uh, and um, what they were doing was classic um, uh, cyber espionage. Um, you know, it's the job of intelligence agencies to find out as much information uh, that their governments uh, uh, need about uh, what's going on in uh, another country, another potential adversary, 
it, for the Chinese in 2008. It was about understanding who might be Obama's next national security advisor if he was elected, who would be the top people advising McCain, what are their views on China, all that. Um, it didn't become sort of public, actually, that it was the Chinese until I broke the story for NBC News in June of 2013, confirming that it was the Chinese. Uh, but here's the thing. Yes, it was considered a big deal, but the reaction among many intelligence professionals is this is what spies do. But what the Russians did in 2016 was something very different. And Guccifer 2.0 was the first, uh, uh, first flick at that. Um, they hacked the DNC. They got into the computers. They stole the emails. And then suddenly this online persona pops up offering reporters glimpses at looking at the emails. That was something the Chinese weren't doing or nobody else had done before. That's seeking to influence, at that point, press coverage about the DNC. It then became a much bigger deal a few weeks later when all the emails start being dumped by WikiLeaks. So, um, so Guccifer um, 2.0 was out ahead of WikiLeaks yeah, independently. Yeah, Guccifer 2.0 came first. And there were reporters um, uh, who were seeking to contact Guccifer 2.0, saying, hey, what do you got? Um, I'd like to see. He, uh, you know, they also hacked. They hacked the DNC, but they also hacked the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. So they had the internal memos about congressional candidates in key swing districts. Uh, this is, you know, Russian military intelligence through uh, Guccifer 2.0, and he was offering uh, peeks at these documents to various reporters in congressional districts uh, around the country, and reporters were lapping it up. They got stuff about some of the candidates. It was quite damaging to some of the Democratic candidates in swing districts, particularly in one swing district in Florida. But um, that was a the first sign that this wasn't um, cyber espionage, uh, it had gone beyond that into a form of information warfare. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, well, so we're, we're really, you know, in talking about this, we're talking about the campaign, but let's uh, go back a little bit in time to Trump's uh, initial connections with mm -hmm. uh, some of these key Russian players, um, just short of Putin himself, but who is Eris Aramatov? And Aguilera. 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 I was going to say, oh, who, who is that? Who is that? <laughs> Aguilera. I'm sorry. Okay. I was looking for my index card. Yeah. It's not here. Aris um, Aguilera. And, and also his, his children, his, his son and his daughter. Emin. Oh, good. Yeah. I get the good one here. Yeah. Donald Trump, it's important to know this, for thir almost 30 years had wanted to do business in, in Russia, going back to the Gorbachev days. And he had come really close, as I mentioned a moment ago, on several big deals to put up towers or to renovate major hotels in, uh, that, have, that, that had become run down in Moscow, and nothing had ever really clicked or gotten, you know, gotten to fruition. Um, in 2013, uh, Eris Ergalerov, a billionaire oligarch who is a developer and a builder who's very close to Putin in Russia, well, his son is what really started all this, a guy named Emin, 
We just call him Emin because he wants to be known by his first name, Emin, because he wanted to be a pop star, a singer. In fact, he was known as the Elvis of Azerbaijan. Uh, <laughs> he had been raised in New Jersey, actually, and, uh, idol and idolized the king. Um, and you know, went back to Azerbaijan and became kind of a you know a, a, a major pop sensation there. He's a fellow of middling talent, uh, but ra rather handsome and cultivated a, a, a rakish playboy persona. And um, he had a manager, and his manager was named Rob Goldstone. And in 2013, they were trying to figure out how he could become big in the United States. At the same time, they also were filming a video of his latest song. And they wanted the most beautiful woman in the world. So they went to Miss Universe. And this is how Miss Universe makes money. It basically rents out its winners for commercials and things like this. And it rented out Olivia Coppa, who was Miss, Amer Miss America, and, uh, to be in this video. And that forged a connection between Emin and the Miss Universe contest. And he raised. And this is happening in Moscow, right? No, this is all happening in the United States. Okay. And this is 2013. And he raises the idea oh. of bringing the Miss Universe contest to Baku, oh, uh -huh. Azerbaijan. They are not keen on this, but in the conversations that go on, they, he, he, Emin and Rob Goldstone say, "Well, what about bring it to Moscow?" And they say, "We've thought about this, but there's too much red tape, and we don't have a good venue." Emin goes, well, I just ha happen to have a father who owns the best theater in Moscow, Crocus City Hall, 7,500 seats, and he knows how to get around red tape. He's built soccer stadiums, highways, high luxury developments, and they say, oh, this is kind of interesting. They bring the idea, Miss Universe, to Donald Trump. At that point, he co-owns the Miss Universe contest, and he jumps at it, jumps at it. And now his partner in this endeavor is not just Emin, it's Aris Egerlerov, the billionaire developer who is close to Putin. If you want to get something built in Moscow, what could be better? And this leads to, the, to bringing Miss Universe to, um, to Moscow in 2013 and the beginning of Trump's bromance with Putin and the idea, and, and, and as people at Miss Universe told us for the book, they really felt that the whole project was really a stepping stone for Trump to get his foot in the door. And you have to think about it this way. If you want to build a tower with your name on it in Moscow, you need the government's approval. You're not just in permits, but just overall. And it's really at that point in time, starting with the Miss Universe co contest, being announced that it's going to be held in Moscow, that Donald Trump starts making this long, bizarre series of flattering remarks about Vladimir Putin. In fact, the first one is, in June 2013, we're bringing Miss Universe to, to Moscow. Will Putin be my BFF? <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, this is a guy who's already, he hasn't, he hasn't yet invaded Ukraine, but there are human rights abuses everywhere and, and journalists are being killed. He's just passed a terrible law virtually criminalizing discussion of homosexuality in Russia, and he wants to be his BFF. So we talk about in the book, this is really the, the start of this weird, dark bromance uh, between Trump and Putin. 
And it's all about, you know, it's all kind of managed through this relationship with Eris Aguilarov. But at this stage, Trump is essentially a real estate developer. He Well, that's giving him more credit. I mean, he's, he's basically a branding genius. I mean, he's not doing his own developments. He's getting projects where he gets money for giving his name. They're managing. He's trying to build something actually in Baku that becomes falls apart. But this is, yeah, this is what he, he, he wants, wants to happen. And indeed, Miss Universe ends with a deal with Aris Ergilarov to build a tower. And it's being financed by a bank that is state-owned. So Trump was literally in bed in a business deal with, uh, with, the, with the Russian government in 2014. Falls apart because of the sanctions. I was just going to say that. Yeah. So why does it fall apart? At that point, Obama is president, and we've been uh, After this is after the annexation of Crimea, there are sanctions. There are, there are the economy Russia. starts cratering. Economy yeah. starts cratering. And as Rob Goldstone told us for the book, you know, Trump blames the collapse of this deal on uh, on the sanctions. But, you know, he doesn't give up. A year and a half later, in 2015, while he is running for president, Michael Cohn is negotiating a new tower deal for Donald Trump through his former uh, felon named Felix Sater. And Trump is not telling anyone this. He's running for president. He's the leading Republican candidate. He's going on Morning Joe and saying Putin's not a bad guy. And he is trying to make millions of dollars by working, in essence, with the Putin government. You know, you wonder whether many people have said that Trump himself did not think he would win the election. Um, and, uh, he, but he would have had much greater name recognition, hence his branding power would be only greater. Yeah. Uh, had he lost the election, and he may well have had a plan B for not be, if I'm not going to be president, I'm going <laughs> to. One of the uh, fun anecdotes in our book uh, is, is jumping ahead, uh, uh, October 7th, which I'm sure we'll get to one of the most fateful days in American politics, but it begins yeah. with uh, Jay Johnson, uh, who was the uh, sec uh, Obama Secretary of Homeland Security. Um, uh, there was a hurricane that day, Hurricane Matthew which was approaching the coast of Florida. Uh, the governor, Governor Scott, had called for evacuation. Hillary Clinton asked for a briefing on what the, um, what the plans were for uh, 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 Hurricane Matthew. And so Johnson gave her one, and then fig figuring if he, had, if he gave Hillary Clinton one, he had to give Trump one as well. So he calls up Trump, says, I have to give you this briefing. And Trump is, hey, Jay, how you doing? Great, you're doing a hell of a job. Yeah, yeah, tell me about the thing. Hey, hey, what are you gonna be doing after all this is over? And Jay Johnson said, well, I'll probably be going back to my law firm in New York. He said, well, you have to come by and see me at Trump Tower. <laughs> and Jay Johnson like does a double take saying, um, Wait, you're, Mr. Trump, you're running for president. There are some scenarios where you might be someplace other than Trump Tower. And uh, Trump goes, oh, yeah, right, right, as you remember. <laughs> so when you ask whether Trump expected he was going to win, uh, yeah. so maybe insight uh, mm -hmm. into whether this was all yeah. one big ego trip. One big branding in which exercise. It's a branding exercise, uh, or mm -hmm. how seriously he actually expected to win the election. Well, Trump had a win-win scenario for either yeah. I'm president yeah. or my business right. is in much better shape than it was before. Right. Right. Uh, and all those promises to fund the campaign himself, he really didn't. Um, so, well, let's, uh, 
we have this amazing cast of characters and mm -hmm. uh, all, of, all of this stuff that's gone on, but um, let's get dug a little bit deeper. You know, Trump himself, during the debates at one point, do you remember this, that he said, um, hey, Russians, if you're listening, you might have the quote yeah. you know, directly. Well, yeah, yeah, he said, if you're listening, uh, please get the, yeah. um, hey. send me those emails. No, get, if you can yeah. get those 33,000 emails from Hillary Clinton, yeah, yeah. I'm sure the press would reward you mightily, yeah. yes. Yeah. And that, I don't, yeah. Now, now some, might say, some might say, and the exact quote is in the book, by the way, um, <laughs> the, uh, that he was being sarcastic. Uh, but given the context of everything else in which his, uh, this is what he was saying publicly, privately, we know his campaign people were doing everything they could to try to get access to those emails. Um, so I'm not quite so sure how sarcastic Trump well, was. Well, I think he was saying, um, you know, bring it on, you yeah, know, uh, yeah. we're, we're, yeah. we're liking this. And in a way, doesn't that almost argue against the idea of him being so, having such secretive connections with the Russians? Mm. So why would he say that if it was a secret? In a sense, he was being, you know, very transparent. Well, what do you make of that? You're, you're, you're assuming rationality. Oh, okay, <laughs> which is which is your first mistake, Deidre. Okay. But um, but but other other than that, I mean, we 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 do know that after it became known that the Russians were had hacked the DNC and it was presumed that they were behind the leaks of the material. His campaign uh, kept reaching out to the Russians, whether it was Carter Page going over there to give a speech in July, going to Moscow, whether it was George Papadopoulos, who, according to Robert Mueller, uh, he told Robert Mueller he was trying to set up a back-channel communication with Putin's office. Uh, you know, the ambassador from Russia, Sergei Kislyak, says that he had conversations with Flynn before the election, not just after the election. So we have. So while it's known the Russians are mounting what Mike, you know, accurately described as an act of information warfare, the Trump campaign keeps trying to reach out to them, and it's not saying not to say don't do this. It's sort of signaling to them we want to be your friends. We want to be your BFF while you're attacking the United States, and that's you know the private and public. They're denying Russia's doing this in some ways. You know, when, when uh, Paul Manafort, Don Trump Jr., weeks after having this meeting, are out there saying, oh, the complaints that the, that the, the Russians are doing this is, are false. And then Trump says the same thing later on in the campaign. So, um, I mean, I don't think that one statement, you know, indicates, you know, what was, what was the state of the campaign in terms of its connections to Russia. There were multiple connections. They were never told to stop, and in public, they did everything they could to either encourage the Russian attack or to deny it was happening. I know it sounds a little contradictory, but it was really to confuse the picture and, and, and provide cover. What they did was they provided cover for this Russian attack throughout the campaign. So what, what do you say then, you know, having heard that, but what do you say then to those who say that the evidence for collusion on Trump's part is very thin and probably not provable and, you know, might, might wind up coming to nothing on that issue of collusion? Well, look, collusion is um, uh, an elastic term that can mean different things to different people. Um, it's not, there's no federal statute 
that the, uh, uh, it involves collusion. It's not defined in the federal code uh, as to what it is. Um, it's kind of, um, you know, in some ways, I think the debate and discussion uh, about what was a very serious um, uh, interference in our democracy, interference attack on our democracy, has been clouded by the use of that term. And it's become, you know, either, either, either there was collusion or there was not. We know that there was a conspiracy by the Russians to do something in our democratic process that we had never seen before. Um, it was multifaceted, um, it was secretive, um, it involved lots of players, it involved cyber attacks, it involved invasions on social media through surreptitious, through phony personas, um, uh, involving hundreds of, ca uh, of, of, of individuals, um, it involved probes on state election systems, um, and as part of that, there were all these contacts between the people doing it and one political campaign, the Trump campaign. Um, and you know, you look at the list of 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 players in this. Paul Manafort. Paul, you know, there's a chapter in our book about Paul Manafort. The title of the chapter is a quote from Victoria Nuland, who was the Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, uh, and something she said when she learned that Paul Manafort was going to be the Trump campaign chairman. And it was, Manafort, he's been a Russian stooge for 15 years. Why did, he, why did she say that? He had, you know, he'd been this political consultant in Washington. He uh, uh, carves out this niche for himself, uh, uh, representing uh, basically foreign despots around the world, and finds a very lucrative uh, uh, home in Kiev, where the pro-Russia political party, led by this thug named Yanukovych, uh, who later became Ukraine's president, was paying him millions of dollars to help him win Ukrainian elections. Uh, and um, in the course of that, um, he's, you know, not, it's not just millions of dollars flowing to all these offshore accounts, but he forges a relationship with a guy named Oleg Deripaska, who was the uh, uh, a billionaire aluminum king of, uh, of Russia, um, who was uh, known as one of the two or three oligarchs closest to um, uh, Vladimir Putin and had been doing the bidding of the Putin regime around the world for many years. Now, uh, just a few weeks ago, um, the um, uh, Treasury Department, um, prodded by congressional legislation, um, uh, imposed new sanctions blacklisting um, a whole bunch of Ro Russian oligarchs. The first name on the list is Deripaska. And it spells out what the U.S. intelligence community had gathered about Deripaska. And it talks about evidence of extortion, racketeering, bribery, uh, ties to organized crime, and attempted murder of business rivals. So that was the guy who was Manafort's business partner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, uh, now, there's a kind of interesting curve uh, in the story, a uh, wrinkle in the story, because at some point, uh, Deripaska and Manafort have a falling out. 
uh, Deripaska comes to believe that Manafort has stiffed him on a, uh, a Ukrainian cable deal and, uh, and, and $18 million of his money, Deripaska's money, has gone missing. So he initiates uh, litigation against Manafort. He's pursuing Manafort for the missing $18 million. And Manafort is feeling the heat uh, with Manafort going after him, uh, uh, and uh, he's worried. They get a. Uh, they actually served him with a. Although they, uh, the litigation began in the Cayman Islands, Manafort gets served uh, in at his home in Alexandria with a subpoena uh, from uh, Deripaska's lawyers. So he's really nervous. And so what does he do? He starts sending emails through a conduit saying maybe we could placate Deripaska by giving him private briefings. Uh, about what's going on inside the Trump campaign. So you have a campaign, the chairman of one of the two presidential candidates is in hock to a mobbed up Russian oligarch who is uh, doing Putin's bidding and trying to buy him off by giving him insights into what's going on in the campaign. That's sort of unusual. I can't but think my, but, of But Mike, uh, but Mike yeah. it's, it's not collusion. <laughs> no, I know, no, no. No, no, I know. I said, like, yes. It's right. not collusion. Yeah. I'm this is only one offenses? of many examples. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, listen, Manafort is facing criminal charges right, but, uh, as we are speak. Are there any... Can um, you, can relating you, to the monies he got from the pro-Russia political party in Ukraine. Yeah, um, and, uh, you know, of course, Mueller's ultimate goal is to make it clear to Manafort he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison unless he opens up about everything mm -hmm. and says everything he knows about his dealings with Deripaska, his dealings with the Trump campaign. And, and the, um, but the big yeah, question is, what did Trump know? But, but. Yeah, I'm not sure that is the big okay. question because that may be completely unknowable. Uh, it may be unknowable. <laughs> he may for, not know. That's what I mean. He may not know. If he doesn't know, how can we know? But uh, okay. but uh, but on, on, the, on the point of collusion, we we don't we try very hard in the book not to get caught up uh, as that as the the standard to, to to meet or miss. And a phrase that we use instead is that Trump and his cohorts aided and abetted. The Russian attack, uh, and you ask what you know, Trump knows. We do know that in August of 2016, he gets a briefing, as presidential nominees do, on intelligence matters. And uh, James Clapper, who is the was the director of national intelligence, confirmed this to us for the book. During that briefing, he is told, he is told the hacks of the DNC, the leaks that are coming out through Wikipedia, through Guccifer 2.0. It's all a Russian operation. We know it. We have intercepts. It's clear. There's no question about this. So he comes out of that meeting, and what does he say? Who knows if it's the Russians? It's a 400-pound guy in a basement. This is a hoax. This is, they're making this stuff up. And so I said earlier about providing cover. The way I like to think about this um, is that if you're standing in front of a bank and you, you're told there's a robbery going on in the bank, and you can see there's a robbery going on in the bank, and people are walking past you, and you say to them, huh, there's no robbery, nothing to see here. Whether you are in on the caper from the get-go, you're helping them. And this is literally what Donald Trump did. Yeah, and that was during the campaign, and then something very similar when James Comey talked to him about the 
uh, Steele dossier right. after he was president. It's the well, introduction. Uh, it's the introduction in our book. The first yeah. scene is. And he, uh, but he doesn't care about the Russian attack. He cares yeah, about yeah. one thing in yeah. particular. Yeah. This is a little bit outside of your book, but I'd like your yeah. comments on what happened in the mainstream media. And I pulled this up on my iPhone to make sure I got this right. But this is a based on a Harvard study of mainstream election coverage uh, of the New York Times. Um, revealed that there were roughly four times as many Clinton-related sentences that described scandals as opposed to policies. Whereas for Trump, um, there were one and a half, they were one and a half times as likely to be about policy as about scandal. There were more than six thousand. <laughs> Trump had no policy. Yeah. Yeah. There were also more than 60,000 mm -hmm. sentences published about Clinton and her emails, um, and less than 10,000 about Trump's connections to Russia. Yeah. So not just social media, but mainstream yeah. media. Uh, I will, I will and take I would a crack just at that. like your yeah. comments well, on Well, first that. of all, look, um, uh, um, I, I, Hillary Clinton was under criminal investigation while serving as, while being the Democratic presidential candidate. That is also unusual. It's not something we've had before, but Comey makes it clear that he, he writes in his book why, you know, the New York Times reported that there was a criminal referral about Hillary Clinton in the summer of 2015. Um, and the Clinton campaign was ferocious in its pushback and got the Times to retract the story, run corrections. The story was right. The FBI did have a criminal investigation open on uh, her use of that private email server. It was not just a violation of State Department rules, but there were legitimate questions about whether classified emails uh, were being uh, communicated and distributed on an unclassified system. Um, you can't get around that, and that was publicly known um, that, uh, that this had become an issue. Uh, in part, the Clinton, you know, she was not very good at responding and giving very good adequate answers. So I, no apologies for the fact that this was a legitimate campaign issue and people should have been writing about it and she should have been asked the tough questions that uh, you know, she did. And if she had maybe answered them the right way the first time, it wouldn't have had to dribble out for the rest of the campaign. Um, but it's also true that some of us were doing aggressive reporting on Trump and Russia, but we didn't know the extent to which the FBI uh, uh, was taking as seriously as they were for legitimate reasons all the connections uh, that the Trump people had and we didn't know the extent of the investigation. I was the first to report that there was an FBI inquiry into Carter Page uh, based on his trip to Moscow. Uh, and that was something I confirmed and reported in September of 2016. But I didn't know the half of it. I didn't know the quarter of it. There was much more going on. And if I did, I would have reported it. If others could have confirmed that, that the FBI had as extensive an investigation as they did, it would have been um, a huge story. So I don't think this indicates if that's what you were going to suggest, that there was some kind of political bias here. It just happened to be the way these things played out. But, but I, I, without uh, disagreeing with any of that, I do think there was a media failure. I, I, I do believe, you know, while, you know, Mike and I can tell you just how difficult it is to figure out what the FBI counterintelligence investigators are doing, and it, I don't blame anyone for not 
getting that sooner uh, during the campaign. But, you know, but when you looked at, the, you know, there are two big Russian hits at the DNC, the Democratic National Con uh, Convention, and then in October when the Podesta emails come out, uh, which are leaked on, on October 7th. And for each of those stories, you know, the dominant narrative by a factor of 10 or 100 was the content that was being released, not the fact that this material had been stolen and was part of a Russian attack. You know, even if it wasn't fully confirmed in the, in the first attack, it was certainly what most experts were saying and what intelligence people were saying on background. And I understand why political journalists, you know, who love, and I, I, I say this about myself, we lo I'll say we, we love the gossip, the tidbits, what goes on inside the Clinton world, why, you know, the, you know, why the Bernie Sanders people are mad at the DNC people. I mean, that's kind of what you do. You're it's like, you know, Washington journalism is not like high school. You know, but most of life is like high school. And so the people who cover the politics focus on those things. And they, and for as much as the Clinton campaign tried to try to get the story framed, we're under attack from Russia. I understand why the politicos of the world focused on the day-to-day -day hits coming out. But that doesn't absolve the media at large because this was hiding in plain sight. And it just was never framed and put that way. And on October 7th, the day that the Obama administration, I think belatedly, and in a maybe a lo too low-key manner, manner, officially put out a statement saying, we've determined that it is the Russians who are doing this. Um, you know, the aforementioned Jay Johnson, whose name was on that statement with James Clapper, they thought this would be big news. They thought this would be, a, that they didn't have to, like, have a big press conference. They could put this statement out on a Friday afternoon, and the next day their phones would be ringing off the hook with reporters trying to do follow-ups. Well, they put that story out at 3 o'clock, I think 3.01 p.m. that day. You know what came out at 4.01? The, 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 the pussy tape. And so that we have a story in the book where literally an aide to... Jay Johnson is on the air with a you know with an important reporter who say we're going to go big on this nightly news you know two and a half minutes which is big for them whatever he, he was saying we're going to play this up big and then all of a sudden he goes wait huh huh gotta go click <laughs> and it was all about the pussy tape until an hour later it was the John Podesta emails that are leaked the same day October seventh which happened to be trivia contest whose birthday. <laughs> Vladimir Putin. Putin's birthday, <laughs> the day that American politics is totally screwed, in part because of what the Russians did, it's his birthday. But from that point on, the Podesta emails came out 2,000, 3,000 a day, and everybody scrubbed them for the best stories they could get. But the, but the, but the big story, that this was all the product of a Russian attack, which was now publicly confirmed by the government, got very little attention. And I think that's where the big failure is. Not that there was too much coverage of Hillary's email, but that there wasn't enough focus on what was kind of known. We've been listening to David Korn and Michael Isakoff, co-authors of the bestseller Russian Roulette in conversation with Deirdre English. This has been On Mike, a podcast presentation of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. 
Technical facilities for On Mike are underwritten by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation. Our producers are Kat Shooknecht and Lee Mengistu. I'm Dean Ed Wasserman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us next time.